Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Surely there is no film more Christmassy than It's a Wonderful Life. Tweet me if you disagree, but trust me, you'll be wrong. And yet, isn't it odd how a film that shows the season of goodwill bringing out the best in people also shows how it can trigger our darkest anxieties and push some people towards suicidal thoughts? This is a difficult time of year for many, a time of great highs and great lows. Today, we're going to be talking about mental health and suicide, and the work of one charity to help people through those darker moments. This might be the most important podcast you'll hear all year. Or it might be one that you can't quite bring yourself to listen to right now. In which case, come back and find us tomorrow. Last year, in the UK more than 6,000 deaths were recorded as suicide. Three quarters of those were men. I felt such an incredible level of stigma. I couldn't escape that in my head. For this year's Christmas appeal, the Times and the Sunday Times are supporting the mental health charity Calm, the campaign against living miserably. Surely that's a cause we can all get behind. Every day of the year, Calm helps people who are struggling. To be able to finally talk about it, get it all out and just write it down exactly how I'm feeling, what's been going on, that took a massive weight off my shoulders. Today, we'll hear from two people whose lives have been impacted by suicide and who found support through Calm. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, United Against Suicide. I never intended to, to get into this type of work, that's for sure. Mental health, if I was asked to describe what that meant maybe five years ago, I wouldn't have been able to give you a clear description. That is Harry Corrin. Founder of Corrin Co, mental health training and consultancy business. 
I guess if I was to look back at myself five years years ago, looked at what I had, I would say, you know, life was going pretty good. But I had a key part of me that I hid from everyone for pretty much my entire life. I grew up in Cornwall. So St. Ives mm. in Cornwall, pretty much the place where everyone is happy. Cocktails, the beach, sunshine, barbecues. It's everyone's picture of a perfect summer. Absolutely. And for me, that was my childhood. So I, I lived on, on a campsite. My mum and my dad managed a campsite, so we lived in a house next to it. So I pretty much had a holiday for the vast majority of my life. A big part of my story is connected to sports as well. So we had a, a football pitch that was connected to uh, the campsite. So I pretty much played football all of the time, all of the time. And Alan Shearer was my hero from day one. And being from Cornwall and, and idolising someone who played for Newcastle United to the hatred of my mum and my dad was not ideal. And having <laughs> spent uh, most of their probably money on me travelling up to, to Newcastle uh, to make let me watch games. But Harry's idyllic childhood came to an abrupt end. 15 years ago. I was waking up a normal school day and it was the Royal Cornwall show. So, you know, county shows that happen in the UK. Uh, my favourite day of the year. So I was looking forward to it and could hear downstairs in the kitchen area and front room that there were people talking, like lots of people in my house, which was odd and not something that would normally happen. And I went out to the window to see who was there and could see that there were reels of police cars outside and I was like, okay this, this doesn't make sense what's happening and went downstairs and that's when yeah my life completely changed really i found out that morning that my my, my dad died by suicide and you don't have a complete full recollection of that particular moment but then i guess there are a few things i can remember which yeah were important parts of why i do the work that i do today how old were you on that day what were your first thoughts when you were told what had happened I was 12 years old at the time. Until someone tells you something that is so out of the blue, there isn't a right or wrong way to react. And for me, what I did was I asked to go to school. And I remember that quite vividly. I refused to not let anyone let me go to school. I'm in control still. You know, I'm in control of this. And even at 12 years old, I can remember thinking, I'm not being around here. I don't want to be here. And I'd have this moment where I would occasionally think about what they had told me and the fact that dad wasn't here. And it was like a physical thing that I'd block out. So I'd hold my nose, hold my eyes closed and would almost block it out, like physically push that away from everyone. And I kept on doing it. I kept on doing that. And on the day, I just played football, actually. I just played football outside. I refused to be in that house. I didn't want to talk about it. That coping mechanism continued through my vast majority of my, my, my younger days, but also in my, into my adult life as well. And Harry, take us back a step. Take us back to the period before that day at the age of 12 when you were given the news. What had your relationship with your father been like? My relationship with my, my father was one that, you know, you, you idolised him. He had this um, like green Morris Minor van. It was so loud and so noisy, but you would hear this reverberate around the town whenever he was driving. And, and, and I'd hear this happening when I'd come home from school. And it was quite a powerful moment. We spent a lot of time with each other. You know, my dad was someone who put a huge amount of time and energy into his family and those people he loves. And yeah, I guess that's kind of part of the difficulty of what happened, right? It's not like we had a distant relationship. We were incredibly close. I know this will sound like an odd question, but what was your relationship like with your father after that day? This is something I, I you know, always care about how I share because it sounds odd, it sounds strange, but I've never had difficulty with my sleep. From day one, I've never had difficulty. And the reason being, when that happened, when I found out about my dad, when I went to sleep in the weeks after he was there, and I lived this life that was 
Part one was me going to school, living my life, having difficulty in my mind around uh, around the fact that I lost my dad to suicide. I'd go to sleep and I'd be at ease because I was living this like kind of separate life where I, it would actually follow on day after day and it would lead on to a story. That's how strong and vivid the dreams were. So I actually had a lot of comfort because I knew that I was living this false life. And there were times even when I was 13, 14, when I, when I think it was all real. These dreams, this is your, your father appearing in them every single night it happened for at least four or five years after and it's one of those things and you think does that really happen did it happen it happened <laughs> it happened and every single day i'd have comfort and so it doesn't happen now but in those early years when i think your mind is racing and there's so many thoughts and processes our dreams can become form a reality and it did for me in these dreams you're basically carrying on life as it would have been if if he hadn't killed himself he's still there as a presence advising you playing with you He's he's still being your yeah. father. It sounds quite upsetting to hear, but that's what happened. And I always remember the one where I woke up in, in December and I thought it was Christmas and I thought it was everyone. That's how kind of raw and deep the pain had gotten. I wake up and it's not like that. And I always had difficulty with moments in the calendar year or moments in life where you are expected to be happy and expected to have your full family. I always struggled because I was living this false life. It was just me sleeping. And then I had yeah the reality of that. And it was very vivid. How did you deal with it? So during the day where, you know, he's obviously not around and you're having to carry on life, you know, you're going through school, you're going to university. How did you cope? I don't think I did. It was probably the kind of bottom line. I often say that I didn't have time to grieve or process what happened because sometimes when people die by suicide, what's left behind is sometimes harder to grasp and cope with losing someone. Where I could, I would actually say that he was alive to people who were far away from and had no connection to what happened because it was incredibly easy to do that. You would just pretend nothing had changed? Pretend that nothing has changed. There were people that knew me who thought that he was alive. There were people that knew nothing about my personal life because I would skim over it or I'd create and say, well, I have my family and I'm going back to them at, at Christmas or whatever I was doing. But actually the reality was I wanted people to see a, a certain version of myself that had nothing to do with suicide. I felt such an incredible level of stigma. Harry, suicide, suicide, Harry. I couldn't escape that in my head. And for me, it became an amazing skill that I had to actually go into life, go into meeting new employers, dating, new football clubs, university. And actually, you know what? I could tell when that was going to come up as a question. What do your family do? You know, what's life like back at home? And I would make sure I never got to that. If it did, I had answers ready. Why do you think you responded like that? I mean, you mentioned the stigma of suicide. Was it that you were worried about what people would think of you or... What were you worried about in, in people knowing? I was worried about so many different factors that what, how people might judge me, my family, my dad, you know, and I think when it becomes this thing that nobody talks about from a societal level, you think that people are judging you and you think that people are going to remember you as that. Oh yeah, Harry, the guy who lost his dad to suicide or, oh yeah, do you know he lost his dad to suicide? And it probably would have been slightly more judgmental. It would have been loaded with stigma, it would have been loaded with judgment about people even realising it. And I hated the connection that my name had, both my first and my second name, had to suicide. So I decided to actually think, well, actually, why does it need to be? You know, why not just talk about the things that you want to talk about? And it was a coping mechanism. Talking about it, and as hard as it sounds to make up that false identity and, and pretend that nothing happened, it sounds very traumatic and it was difficult. It was difficult to put on that front, but it was actually, it helped. It helped at that time because I had no other coping mechanism. I mean, it sounds really heavy and 
having gone through so many of your formative years, you know, as, as a student, university, building up like this armour to protect yourself with lies and pretending nothing had ever gone wrong. At what point does that crack? At what point do you stop and think this can't be the right way of dealing with it? What made you change? For me, the crack started to show when I had got to the point that I wanted to. So after the fight, the battle to keep up appearances, keep going, keep ticking off the milestones, actually, it was when I got there, it was when I got to the point that I was aiming for, that actually I realised that wasn't what I wanted, not what I needed, because nobody knew me in the process. And I was, yeah, in a, in a very good job, about to travel a, a large amount. And everyone at home and lots of people close to me thought that it was a fantastic job. And I would talk about it and say how amazing life was. I was still lying through my teeth. The reality was, yeah, didn't keep myself clean and tidy, got angry with everyone I, I met, drunk way too much alcohol, spent all my money, uh, would literally argue at the slightest things with people that I loved. And I just hated myself. I hated myself that I wasn't happy now that I'd got here. And I think that's the point where I realized, you know, I can't keep living like this because the thought processes that I was having in my mind were scaring me even. Why am I not happy? And I get so angry with myself. And I, at that point, I was like, okay, I have to do something. I can't have these thought processes getting worse and worse and worse. And I went to a GP and I pretty much just poured my heart out to this poor GP. And I just, yeah, cried. I was encouraged to access medication to support my mental health and then also counselling and came away from that consultation process with the, the GP. And I thought, yeah, I, I feel relieved that I've done that. But even then, I walked out of the doctor's surgery, got into my car, drove back home 15 minutes and convinced myself I didn't need it. You know, I'd actually done the hardest step and I still convinced myself that I'd got through adversity in my life before. I can get through this as well because look what I'm doing with my life. That was the narrative in my head, the negative self-talk that I had. And yeah, I, I didn't take the GP up on anything that was set up for me. And yeah, the reckless behavior, the thought processes, the lack of love for me just got worse and worse. And got to the point where I was just couldn't do it. I couldn't wake up, couldn't get myself out of bed. And yeah, quit my job completely out of the blue. Wow. Woke up, I was like, yeah, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And I just ran away, physically ran away. And in a very, very short space of time, moved to London. And I was just still running, thinking, oh, what on earth do I do? Just get myself out of here. And I think sometimes when you don't know how to deal with your mental health and your feelings, just run. That's what I've told myself at the time. That's the only way I knew what to do. And in London, where you've run to, there is a moment that changes things for you. Just describe what you saw and what happened. So this was in March 2018. At this point, a new job that I found, a snack bar company, a very small company at the time. And we were in a shared office space in London on the South Bank. And I commuted into Waterloo Station. And, and I remember coming in into Waterloo and wanted to just get out the other side. I was running late for this meeting that I had with new employees. And normally, I would go the scenic route to work. I was late, so went head down, narrow side streets, and went to the office, went to the top floor. That's where our meeting was. Glass panoramic window wraps the entire building, and I could see out of my eye line that there were people standing on a building less than 500 metres down the road. You're like, what on earth is happening? What is happening? And this line of what looked like human people 
scared me. My heart started to race, you know, my chest was pounding, dry mouth, felt sick that these people were about to jump because why else would they be standing in a line on the front of a building? This morning, presenters Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby have unveiled 84 individual sculptures, each representing a real man who took his own life. The figures are positioned on the roof of the ITV studios in London. I then searched on my phone, searched people on Tower London and yeah, what I was exposed to that day was a stunt to raise awareness of male suicide. And the stunt was set up and led by Calm, the campaign against living miserably. And it was called Project 84. 84 was reflective of the number of men who died by suicide every single week. Every week? Every week. And that was in 2018. That number has since risen. Wow. And I'm like, what is happening? You know, what is happening to me? I'm running away from all of these thoughts about my own private life from years ago, but then suddenly, I, you know, celebrities, uh, different news outlets talking about suicide and this charity calm I've never heard of before. And I yeah, clicked on the first link that I saw. And that link took you to uh, a page where you could read the stories of the people that were on the rooftop. My son took his own life in May 2016. Seven years now since my son took his life. I lost my brother to suicide. I lost my dad to suicide in 2014. I'm here with my sister. So the people were made and built by family members, people who lost their brother, their father, their uncle. And suddenly what you found is I was reading stories about people who had lost them to suicide for the first time in my life. For me, I was then thinking, whew, this is quite powerful. This is a process where I'm realizing it's not just me. I can see me and other people who are grieving. That was when the penny started to drop because I first felt connection to this topic around suicide and it wasn't raw hatred, but it was actually, okay, people do go on and live fantastic lives. And yes, they lose maybe the person that's closest to them, but the community of people that is connected of which Calm had built was for me the biggest form of therapy, really. Since that moment of seeing the statues on the roof as part of Calm's campaign, Harry started to open up about suicide and now works as a mental health campaigner and raises awareness around the subject in offices and workplaces. Often there are opportunities to connect with that person leading up to suicide. But if we don't know what that looks like, well, how are we ever going to know what to say? If someone's in a place of difficulty, let's say, and perhaps they might say something like, you know, life's just not worth living. I just can't do this anymore. Life's just so painful. I can't do it. Just imagine asking that person at that point, when you said life's not worth living, did you mean suicide? Even in itself, it doesn't sound natural to say that. But actually asking that can be the biggest preventative factor that any single person in the world can do. Really? Because you're saying the word suicide and you're opening up a conversation about how that person feels. Because I bet you not many people, maybe no one in their life has actually asked them directly about suicide. So people who talk about suicide have to be taken seriously. And for you, has talking to so many people about suicide in a way that, you know, for years you deliberately didn't, have you started to understand your father better? It's still difficult. You know, time has helped with the healing process, but I, I guess I've gained a greater awareness as to why that might have happened. But also I gained a frustration, actually. There are opportunities with where my dad was living his life that actually, you know, I wish the world, every single person knew what 
the risk factors were. I wish people could know what the symptoms were because in my honest belief, if my dad was aware of a resource in a charity like Calm, then he would be alive. And I wholeheartedly believe that because I've seen Calm change people's lives, save people's lives because of the way in which it talks about the subject. And for me, like that's a driver. Yes, never going to be able to change the past, but you can change the future and you can change the day-to-day -day that you're living. And that for me, I guess, is the bit of comfort I have inside of me. While Calm helps people like Harry deal with their loss, it also helps people who are experiencing a mental health crisis now. As Harry put it, it can help to change people's future. In a moment, we'll hear a story of hope from someone who overcame their darkest day. I'm Emma Tucker, and I'm the editor of The Sunday Times. I'm proud that every week we bring you a distinctive take on the news with exclusive stories, investigations, and unrivaled political, cultural, and sporting analysis. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I want you to meet Ash Hargreaves. And if he sounds familiar, it's because you probably know at least 10 people just like him. He's hardworking, dependable, an all-round nice guy. I'm 30 years old from Plymouth in Devon. A father to two, to my son Noah and my daughter Parker. I love being a dad. I love being the family man, the guy that goes out and provides for his family. That gives me a lot of joy, a lot of fulfilment from doing that. Ash is a doting father 
who loves his family, his wife Nick, and two kids. My little one Parker, she's younger, she's two. She is absolute spitting image of her mum. And then we've got Noah, who's 10. He's currently in that transition of going from a child to the antisocial teenager sort of stage. Sit there buried in his phone all the time, sort of forever dragging him out, trying to get him to do things. If you're a parent, that part must sound familiar. Like many of us, when the pandemic hit, life for Ash suddenly became dramatically harder. So up until April 2021, I'd been a chef for quite a few years. That industry has always been crazy. So when I first got into that industry, I was single, no kids, no nothing. So that was a perfect way for me to make money. Obviously, gradually throughout the years, having Noah and then having Parker, being with Nick, as you get all of these things that are way, way, way more important than the job you have. But the, that job just consumes your life. Do you know what I mean? I was working very long days, working 12, 13, 14 hour shifts and supposed to finish at a certain time. That very, very rarely happened, which again then would cause issues at home. And then obviously when the lockdown started happening, oh, that was all a bit crazy because the industry that was already bad was declining even more than I thought possible. As Ash's job was becoming less and less secure, things were getting busier at home too. So Parker was born July 2020, which was just towards the end of the first lockdown. So going back to work again after that, after being off for six months with a new baby, that was very difficult, very taxing on all of us. Things were getting progressively worse, you know what I mean, as time was going on through the lockdowns, through the furloughs, etc. It was the, the third lockdown was when things got real bad. The government is once again instructing you to stay at home. I'm down money because I'm on furlough. Nick's down money because she's on maternity leave. It was very difficult. And again, like, there was no time frame. In it, so the, the first lockdown was I got told you're going to be off work for three weeks, and I think it was nearly seven months later, six seven months later we went back. It was ridiculous. So the the third one I was like, I I I don't know how much longer we can carry on doing this. I love my family to bits, but being in a house of all of them twenty four seven, it's it it all become too much. I didn't have that release of being able to go to the gym. I wasn't going out to see my friends. I wasn't seeing the people that I worked with. Do you know what I mean? It, it was all very, very difficult. And it got to a point where I, I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I didn't think I could carry on anymore. The pressure had been building up. And for Ash, there was nowhere left to go to let off steam. One day, a few weeks into the third lockdown, things came to a head. So it was 30th of January, 2021. It was a Saturday. There's a lot of things I don't remember from that day, but some of the things I do remember. I'd woken up in a bad mood, snappy with the kids and the missus straight away. And it was something trivial, something stupid. I don't even remember what it was, but we were all like bickering about something. And... 
I just lost it. That was the final piece of the puzzle of things falling apart slowly. And I just, that was like the, the, the tipping point for me. I didn't really know what was what was going to happen, but Nick had said to me, like, you, you need to leave. Like, you can't be the way you are around the kids. Like, you need to get out. And I remember one of the last things she said to me was, you need to pack your stuff and you need to go. And I remember saying, I'm not going to need my stuff. And that was it. I went, shut the door. So I think she knew then what I was intending to do and where it had all led to. I literally turned my phone off for the majority of the day and I was just driving to various places that I enjoyed and just sitting there for a couple of hours at a time. And then I'd move on to the next place because in my head I was thinking this is the last time I'm, I'm going to get to see these places. So I spent the day just trying to process and make some sort of sense of what was going on in my head. But even though there was there was so much going on in my head, there was so much going on in my life, so much crazy stuff, it almost seemed as if there was nothing there. I thought well, none of it matters anymore because this is the end. And then it came to about, it must have been seven, eight o'clock in the evening. I drove to a place, I was on Plymouth Hoe, drove there, parked on the top. Cause, so my, my father passed away in 2010. Uh, we've got a memorial bench for him up there. So I parked on the top and walked along, went and sat on that bench for a bit said goodbye so that's the last time I'm going to communicate with him um, and I just I went and sat by the sea on that on that night the weather was it was horrendous like it was real bad real high tide like very dangerous crazy water and I sat there for about two hours just staring into the city thinking all I need to do is walk down those stairs into the sea and that's it that's the end that's me gone and that was what I had full intention of doing I'd parked the car up left the keys in the car because I thought well just they're no use to me all I had on me was my phone and I was just sat there thinking how easy that would be for me to do that something must have pinged in my head and just went what are you doing you can't do that no and that was it I got up went back to the car drove away from where I was then I just parked up sat in my car trying to work out what was going on and, and I just thought nah like something needs to change here I need to do something about this. So it got to about midnight on that evening and I came home. Following day on the, the Sunday, Calm came up on Instagram. It was an advert for them about their helpline. 
So it took me a couple of days to come round to that. I thought because I needed to speak to somebody that I, I didn't know, someone that wouldn't judge me, someone that I wouldn't have to see using their helpline is effectively to you as a stranger. So I used that more like a, almost a journal for myself where I could write out everything I was feeling, any new things that I was feeling. Like when I, I didn't know how to talk about it or how to explain it, you find it a lot easier when you can type it out and send it that way. And that worked wonders for me, just getting it all out, knowing that I didn't have to face that person after. So to be able to finally talk about it, get it all out and just write it down exactly how I'm feeling, what's been going on, that took a massive weight off my shoulders. Calm had become a lifeline for Ash and he wanted to be able to help others who were experiencing the same kind of crisis. I'd signed up for the Lost Hours walk for Calm to try and raise some money for them and some awareness. I started to become a bit more involved with them doing things for them, sharing my story for them, for the people that follow them to see and to, to read. In a recent campaign for Calm, Ash sat down and wrote a letter to himself, to the person he was in January 2021. It's the sort of letter he wished he could have read back then, but which might still be able to help people now. That was written basically describing what was going on at the time and how things were going to get better, you know, to show that there is, there is hope there, there is always hope there. That no matter how bad things get, they, they can get better. It's difficult to believe at the time when you're in that, that, that things can get better, but with the right things in place, the right help from the right people, the right plans going forward and all those sort of things, things can get better. Hello, mate. It's me. You probably didn't think you'd still be here, but it's been 589 days since you believed the world would be better off without you. You might feel like you can't carry on, but I promise there's so many reasons to stay. I still remember that night like it was yesterday, the day that you thought was going to be the end. When it seemed like there was no way forward. I know things feel impossible right now, but things will change, believe me. That change of career that you and your family so desperately needed, you got it. Those numbers you only dreamt of hitting in the gym, you smashed every single one. You even asked Nick to marry you, and she said yes. It's been tough, becoming a dad for the second time. Lockdowns, arguments, money worries... It can all feel too much, but you're stronger than you think, and this stuff will pass. You're not alone. Nick will be there with you every step of the way. When the mates you'll make at the new job, all of the people you'll see again once the gym reopens, they'll all be there when you need them. And remember, Calm's helpline. It will save your life. I know it can feel scary reaching out to a stranger for help, but when you do, you'll feel so much better for getting all that stuff off your chest. They'll listen without judging you and help you make a plan for the future. Hang on in there, because I promise you, things can and will get better. Even on the darkest night, the sun will rise again. Ash.
If you or anyone you know has been affected by the issues raised in today's episode, then please do reach out to Calm via their helpline or their website at thecalmzone.net. Calm is one of the charities being supported by The Times and The Sunday Times Christmas Appeal this year. If you can afford to, please do donate. It'll help them to do more of their incredible work. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Harry Corrin and Ash Hargreaves. The producer today was Priyanka Delada. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. I know this wasn't an easy episode, but thanks so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.